3: This week, we are going to focus on a crucial story in the history of democracy in our present world, a story that has ramifications uh, for Europe and really for the future of democracy across the globe, but it's a story that's not getting very much attention in the United States. And this is the democratic movement in the country of Belarus, which is, as most of our listeners know, a small country, but a very important and strategically located country uh, in Europe, uh, really at the cusp between uh, Russian and European Union influence. You could argue that uh, Belarus is one of those countries, like the Baltic countries, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, uh, really perched between uh, two of the larger dynamic forces in Europe, the European Union, uh, and Russia. We have with us today an incredible uh, panel of experts who have studied these issues, lived through these issues, and are closely following and closely working on these issues related to democratization in Belarus. Uh, I will introduce uh, each of the panelists. Uh, first, we have Natalia Yager. Uh Good morning, Natalia.
0: Good morning.
3: Natalia uh, was born and raised in Belarus, and she's been a resident of the United States since 2010. She holds a BS in economics from Belarusian State University. And I know from my own experience that many of the brightest minds in in Russia and Belarus uh, were trained in economics, uh, unlike in the United States, where the brightest minds are trained in history. That's obvious to everyone. Uh, she has an MS in statistics from uh, that university in College Station. I can't remember its name. I think it's called uh, Texas A and M or something like that. Uh, and she's been the community coordinator uh, coordinator for Belarusians in Russia in, in Austin. Excuse me, since 2014, and she's uh, the lead for Belarusians in, in in uh, Texas since 2017, uh, this is, uh, as I understand it, Natalia. This is a group of uh, of c- citizens in Texas and in Austin who are active in p- trying to promote democracy in Belarus. Is that correct?
0: Uh, it's more like a community group. Uh, we have uh, people who moved from Belarus or who are just passionate about Belarus. And that's what's keeping us together initially, but we're also good friends. We have some community events and we're trying to promote the culture mainly.
3: That's fantastic. Uh, and it shows once again, the diversity of, of our country and diversity of Texas. Uh, our, our second panelist is Michael Dorman. Uh, Michael has an MA in Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies from the University of Texas at Austin. I had the the real great fortune to work with Michael when he was a student in that program. Uh, His research focuses on the Lukashenko regime's use of anti-Western propaganda, and especially the role of uh, the memory of the trauma of World War II in that propaganda. And uh, Michael lived in Belarus for an extended period of time. Uh, Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Uh, our, our, third, our third panelist uh, is Matthew Orr. Uh, Matthew is pursuing a dual master's degree in global policy studies and Russian and East European and Eurasian studies here at the University of Texas. Uh, he's also a, a student that I've had the fortune to work with. Uh, he received his BA in Russian language and literature from George Washington University and lived in Russia for three years. I assume that included three winters, uh, Matthew? Uh, yes, it did. And you live to tell the tale. <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> he is, along with our next guest, uh, Thomas Rehnquist, uh, a co-host and producer of a, another terrific podcast uh, offered through, through our, our Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies program, Slavic Connection. It's really a terrific podcast. I've had the, the opportunity to, to appear on it, I think, once, and it's really, it's really worth listening to, especially if you're interested in all things uh, Russian, East European, and, and Eurasian. Um, Our final guest uh, is Thomas Rehnquist. Uh, Thomas is a cybersecurity fellow. So when he's not talking about Russia, he's helping to protect our election. I hope that's true, Thomas, right? Partially. (laughs) <laughs> he's, he's a cybersecurity fellow at the Strauss Center here at the University of Texas. Uh, he's a third-year student uh, completing a dual master's in Russian studies and global policy studies. Uh, so he's a dual degree student, just like um, Matthew. Uh, his attention to cybersecurity comes from his uh, interest in the non-military, or as those in the know would say, the non-kinetic elements of uh, political warfare. Um, And uh, he's also, as I said, a co-host and producer of Slavic Connection uh, with with Matthew. So we have a really extraordinary group of experts who bring expertise and experience in Belarus, in Russia, in the region uh, to this discussion today. Before we turn to this august group of um, experts, we have, of course, our uh, eloquent, itinerant uh, poet in residence here, uh, Zachary Suri. What is the title of your poem today?
4: Speaking of the hurricane.
3: All right. Uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little concerned here, but let's, let's hear about the, the hurricane.
4: There is sometimes a clearing in a forest, and sometimes there is a bridge on a brook, and often indeed there is truth in the chorus that freedom can conquer the crook. There is upon occasion an occasion to laugh and a moment to cry on the sea in a raft. A soothsayer will sometimes speak soothingly and even a tyrant will once nod approvingly. There are moments like these when the ocean is calm, when the rivers are still and fear is embalmed, and it comes only once in a lifetime, it said, when the dying can breathe and are no longer dead. But here we are standing in a September of rain, speaking of the hurricane and the death of the slain. Here we are standing in a cold, dense wood and the forest never opens as it sometimes should. The bridge is collapsed and the crook is elated. No tears will be shorn and no truth will be stated. The dead they are dying and the hated still hated. Their hopes have collapsed, their memories faded. The winds do not blow to free shores tonight. The house has collapsed and the floors are alight. But maybe there can be music playing in the wars of night that perhaps will find us when we're ready to fight.
3: Wow, Zachary, I, I love the cadence and the imagery of your poem. What is your poem about?
4: My poem is really about the power of democratic movements, even when they struggle, and even when they, um, when they at first meet with setbacks.
3: Great. Well, that really sets the thematic framework for us uh, beautifully, uh, N- Natalia. Uh, there has obviously been a long-standing democratic movement uh, in, in the ways that Zachary describes, or at least alludes to, in his, in his poem uh, in Belarus. Um, why has uh, this been a been unsuccessful? I guess why has the democratic movement in Belarus been unable to unseat uh, Lukashenko over? Um, really 26 years, Um, the the, the dictator of Belarus has managed to hang on for so long, even during a period before our recent one, when we thought that democratic change was more the norm. Why why is that the case?
0: I would say, uh, in my opinion, uh, the, the resistant group was rather small, and it was a very narrow group of focused people. It did not include everybody in the country. So that made a huge difference. It was seen like like a small group of people who think differently. However, they needed support from everyone, uh, just like it's happening now. Now everybody is out on, at streets protesting, and everybody means students, are uh, senior generation, moms, so dads, kids, just everybody, because this is their the point, the boiling point. After 26 years, people finally realize that they have a voice. Uh, another opinion is that there's a Belarusian mentality because we are seen as quiet people, very peaceful people, and we can tolerate a lot. That's a stereotype that is spread over the world. <laughs> uh, another uh, reason for this year's standoff is the coronavirus response. That was very poor. That was really uh, the trigger of people's discontent because they saw how how... Um, Um, unimportant they are for the government because there was no quarantine Uh, there was actually denial of coronavirus itself and that just triggered a lot of discontent uh, everywhere in every city and town and I've seen those small towns I never heard about protesting which I think made it very different this year so yeah it's massive support it's just supported every layer of the society which I think is amazing and it's unprecedented
3: Well, and and this gives us a a really wonderful sense of of what's happening now. Before we go too deeply into that part of the story, Michael, you've done a lot of work on uh, Alexander Lukashenko's use of propaganda and other things. Tell us more about his rule since 1994, how he came to power and how he's held on to power and and really uh, ruled over this this small country in in such uh, violent dictatorial ways. So Lukashenko was
2: elected in 1994 and he um, won eighty percent of the of the population of the electorate and the only free and fair election Belarus has had as an independent country um, and immediately within within a year he moved in to change the constitution and um, pass referendums that would allow him to stay in power indefinitely and I think because in Eastern Europe and and the former uh territory the uh russian empire in particular there's this history of of not changing leaders and um um when you have a when you do happen on a good leader to to keep them and i think for much of the population especially those that were ingrained with the soviet mentality um lukashenko was seen as as a good leader he was um he was in touch with the agrarian base that was the of the Belarusian electorate at the time. And, um, and so they didn't, they didn't want to give up a good thing. There wasn't that tradition of changing every, every four years or five years or every eight years or, or so on. And, um, and I, and I think it's taken 26 years of, of hardships and, um, economic collapses and currency collapses for the Belarusian people to, to finally sort of, um, be angry to the point that they're they're ready to force change
3: i see it's, it's interesting this this point that leadership transitions are always difficult as we know in the united states uh right now but um they, uh, they're particularly difficult when you don't have institutions and traditions uh, for them, which, which I think is a really important point about the influence of history. Uh, Matthew, you've studied, in some ways, uh, comparative authoritarianism. How would you contextualize uh, the events in Belarus since 1994 up to the present in the context of democratization and authoritarianism around the world? What elements of this are global? What elements of this are particular to Belarus?
1: Sure. No, I I think that's an interesting question. I know that, you know, people in Belarus and the Belarusian opposition were looking at democratization going on in other places, particularly Ukraine. Uh, They saw the uh, Orange or Maidan revolution in 2004 uh, on their southern border, and it really um, inspired them. And there was actually this event, you can look it up on Wikipedia, called uh, the Jeans or the Denim Revolution, um, which took place (laughs) Um, in in 2006, uh, where it was it was at the time the biggest protests uh, against Lukashenko that um, had been seen, and you know they were kind of drawing directly from you know the inspiration that they got from uh, from the Orange Revolution. But um, you know, as, as is the standard playbook, you just bring out the riot police, you don't let any footage or video get out, and you just kind of uh, crush um, with with brute force and. I think that for a long time, the, the because the Belarusian opposition was so small, they, they really did you know they, they didn't organize and they didn't have as much uh, contacts with the West as a place like Ukraine, and so they really didn't know how to organize. But that really started to change um, after the, the second uh, Ukrainian revolution in, in in 2014, the Maidan revolution, where once they saw the power of social media, they realized what role social media can play in all of this and how that can actually be the key to, uh, undoing the regime. And that's precisely what uh, we saw uh, in in this case with Belarus right now, where telegram, uh, has been the tool that has really, in my opinion, allowed everything to change. Um, and we, we can go more into that. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I, I want us to come back to that. But
3: but before we do, uh, I want to turn to Thomas, our, our our cyber expert among many things. Um, h- how did technology, uh, in the first sense, reinforce Lukashenko's uh, rule? Because it, it takes a lot of work, we know as historians, to, to keep even a quiescent country under control for so long, especially with the European Union uh, pushing for democratization on your borders. So, to what extent did technology support uh, the authoritarianism of Lukashenko, Thomas? And and then, how, why are we seeing this transition that Matthew referred to so well uh, today?
5: Well, sure. I'd actually refer people to the work of Erica Chenoweth, who writes about nonviolent protests um, much more eloquently than than I ever could. But uh, she's written about this, how protest movements have become larger and more sustained because of things like Nechta, because of Telegram, because people can organize so much um, more readily. However, they've also become less professionalized. So you would see in the earlier revolutions, or sorry, not revolutions, the earlier movements, they were probably more consolidated and probably had more specific leadership and more clear changes. They just couldn't get the critical mass that the current movement is getting. However, what comes with these huge movements when people can just go wherever they want based on what they're seeing on Telegram or on their phones is you get sort of more amateurism and you get larger uh, masses of people who may not be consolidated around one message or one policy. Um, so Belarus certainly has a massive, a massive amount of protest right now. Uh, we're not seeing the actual way that's going to move to a proper government structure. And I think that's kind of where we are right now.
3: That that makes a lot of sense, Thomas. If I could follow up on that with you, do you do you have a sense that? Um this, uh, the opposition movement really is leaderless. That's what, that's what people are writing about. The, the way this is being written about by some observers, some uh, journalists, is that you have uh, a very authoritarian, traditional, centralized leadership of Lukashenko, and then you have this more cellular, leaderless structure of the opposition movement. It, it, is that really true, and it, it, does that give them a technological advantage now, those in the opposition?
5: So leaderless, would I think that would do a disservice to what Tikhanovskaya has done. Um, she has been as strong of a leader as she can be given the circumstances and that she was briefly removed from the country and has really had to completely change her entire life in the past three months. So I think leaderless would definitely be understating her impact. I do think there is a bit of an amoeba-like structure in which they can kind of be everywhere at once, but they are not insurmountable in any one place. However, as we see, the security service has been fledging and being able to suppress the movement at any point because they can appear anywhere in the country or anywhere in the city, it seems.
3: Right. And, and just to clarify, uh, Svetlana Tsikonovskaya is the opposition candidate, actually the uh, wife of a former opposition candidate who ran and by many accounts uh, won the election on August 9th, uh, 2020. And one of the triggering um, moments for this particular set of protests, of course, was Alexander Lukashenko's uh, blatant um, stealing of this election in, in August of 2020. Uh, Zachary has a question for Natalia, I think.
4: How have we uh, understood the relationship between Belarus and countries in the West like Europe or the United States? Uh, How has the United States and the European Union pushed for democracy in Belarus? But how has that also um, failed in many ways?
0: I think when you have an authoritarian leader who doesn't want to listen, who's not open to a dialogue, that's um, how all the initiatives fail. And we've seen that a lot. We've seen a lot of years of sanctions. We saw years of diplomatic forces approaching uh, Belarusian authorities, but uh, we never had a real dialogue. And also we saw some, uh, some improvement in the recent years. For example, uh, we got the Umb- U.S. embassy back. We didn't have an embassy for many years. Now we saw some, some return of diplomatic relationship. Um, and we got some visits into Minsk last year. However, I don't think uh, that was serious from Belarusian side, because it's much easier to control the power in your own country when nobody sees what's what's going on inside. And uh, there were, of course, a lot of good initiatives coming from from the West. However, I don't think we we have shown a lot of participation in that. Mm. Hmm. And
3: and maybe, Natalia, you can share with our listeners a little bit about what was it like to be a university student in Belarus? Uh, We have this image of totalitarian societies where you don't have information of the outside world and everyone worships the dictator. I have a sense your experience in university was different.
0: Uh, Yes. So I was at school back in 2003, 2008. Uh, That wasn't the time when the internet was actually that powerful. (laughs) So there was a state monopoly on the mass media back in those days. So TV and newspapers and very traditional sources still dominated. We had some student computer networks. That was just the beginning. (laughs) And, of course, there were talks. There were different things you could hear around. But uh, the overall mood, uh, the overall state of mind of people uh, was very quiet, was very... um, We didn't have any protest waves uh, compared to what's happening right now. And uh, yes, I witnessed the 2006 election when people were uh, camping at that main uh, square in Minsk. However, uh, yeah, they just took it down after a few days. So people were protesting, they were expressing their opinions, but it was very narrowly focused and it was very decentralized. Uh, I had some friends who got kicked out of school because of their political opinions. I also had some good uh, uh, people at school, at my school, who tried to cover that up and let their uh, students remain uh, at their programs. So there was some standoff back then, but it was mainly like in very narrow academic circles or political, uh, politically oriented people. I, would, I wouldn't say it touches the masses of, of all the layers of the society. And we also see some generations stand off right now because all the new generations, those guys who never lived in the Soviet Union. Actually, we have people who never lived without Lukashenko because oh, those kids are over 20 right now. They've traveled. They've been to... EU, they traveled all over the world. They have that freedom. Uh, They have the mass media, the internet. You can just show them anything and everything. So it's really hard to control that crowd of people now. So I'm seeing college students being much more open to change these days. And they keep being oppressed, of course. They keep being threatened. Uh, But it's a very different crowd of people right now. And I think they are... The change drivers.
3: That's that's a very powerful uh, image that you've that you've painted for us, uh, uh, Michael. You, you study propaganda, culture, uh, opinion, mass opinion. Uh, would you explain what what Natalia just described to us? Would you explain that as uh, a new generation, uh, the influence of Western of Western ideas? You know what what has what has made this what sounds like a small dissident movement from the early 2000s into a mass movement today.
2: Yeah. So I I think what Natalia said was very interesting that there were certain groups of of professors that would sort of protect students. And I think that speaks to the opposition movement. Um, Even if you go back just five years ago, it was really centered in this kind of elite intelligentsia and uh there were people who spoke belarusian in their in their everyday lives and were kind of um in that way a little bit detached from the the um larger population they they set themselves off there were people that were reading belarusian literature and um they th- even though they saw themselves as as sort of the the like um national movement or something like uh like the the people's movement or something like that they they weren't viewed that way by the by the population at large and so <clears throat> now i think you've um you you have like natalia said a generation who's grown up and they've traveled and they've they've uh they've seen the west and they you know they've, they've been to the states they've been to western europe and um they're not looking to be aligned with a particular ideology. The opposition of, uh, or the, the kind of old guard opposition of Belarus was this anti-Russian, also anti-Polish in a lot of ways, um, anti-Ukrainian. It was it was a lot like the Ukrainian idea of uh, Ukraine for Ukrainians, which is a very nationalistic and uh, idea born out of out of 1930s fascism, really. And, um, and so that was the opposition of, of Belarus, in the 1990s, and much of the 2000s. And, uh, and so now you have a have a movement that's not really opposition, you're not the opposition when you're the majority, right? So it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's not aligned with, with that, that uh, anti Russian, or anti-Western, or any particular ideology, it's aligned with we want to hear, uh, we want to vote and we want to have our votes heard and be counted accurately. And we want to be in charge of our, our destiny. And um, I think in that way, the Belarusian um, protest at the moment are, are very different than what happened in Ukraine during the last Maidan, because that was very pro-Western and anti-Russian it was outwardly anti-Russian and these protests are not anti-Russian and they're not all that pro-Western they're simply Belarusians wanting to have their voice heard and I think there is in Belarus uh, a particular um, aversion to any sort of Maidan-like protest where Lukashenko says with absolute certainty there's not going to be a Maidan in Belarus. And he says that because Belarusians themselves say, we don't want a Maidan.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this is a really powerful comparison with the uh, color revolutions, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine which did overturn a, a pro-Russian authoritarian regime uh, and put in power uh, the current regime in, in Ukraine. And it's, of course, one of the great fears that Vladimir Putin in Russia has. We, we'll, we'll get to the Russian angle on this. But Matthew, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, just building on Natalia and Michael's I- insightful comments, uh, one of the things that, that, as you know, we study when we look at revolutions is, uh, or movements uh, is the balance of fear, Uh, And one of the things that represses uh, social activism and democratic activism is the fear of reprisal, of course. Uh, but it does appear that in every movement, every period of a society going through transition, there's a moment when the balance of fear shifts. Uh, we as historians say that, uh, you know, when you're a leader and you have to barricade yourself uh, in in your uh, palace or your White House, uh, that often is a sign that actually you're more fearful of the public than they are of you. That appears to have happened in Ukraine uh, just in the last 24 hours, Lukashenko um, inaugurated himself president again after stealing the election, but he did it in secrecy. <laughs> Inaugurations are supposed to be public announcements. So how would you explain this, what, what appears to be this shift in the balance of fear, and what is the significance of that?
1: Sure. I mean, I think this is a fantastic point. And I think that uh, we saw in uh, and Tsikandoskaya, in her very first statement, as the election results were coming in, her very first statement said, in any, we, we, we've won this election no matter what because we defeated our fear. And I think that in, in terms of strategy, this was a, a brilliant move because it was this recognition that even if we don't win this election efficient, uh, officially, even if there's months and months and months of fallout, we have still defeated our fear and therefore we've still won. And as far as how the Russian, the Belarusian people, uh, did that, uh, we saw all the tactics that they used during the election to mobilize and to show each other that, hey, we really are the majority here. They folded their ballots when they would put them into the the urn, uh, and set like, like uh, as they say, like hot dog style in the United States, so that everybody who would look into the uh, the glass urns would see all the folded ballots and go, oh, my gosh, we really are the overwhelming majority. And, of course, the folded ballots take up more space, <laughs> um So it was a really brilliant move. And then we saw these very local organizings on election nights where people would wait outside their polling places just in masses and say, read us the results, read us the results. And in a lot of places that they didn't come out, didn't read them the results. But in other places, you know, in the middle of the night, they came out, read the real results, and people just rejoiced. Um, So it was really all about just doing everything to hone in on their local situation, and once other people saw that, hey, wait, we really are the majority, things started to change. And then we saw, and then in the coming days, we saw the next thing. We we saw the same dynamic at factories where factory workers they would say, "Raise your hand if you voted for Tikhanovsky and everybody would stand up and cheer. Right, and so you know, and these videos were just masses and masses. Uh, and so once once that's once these videos started rolling out of workplaces, the next day. Uh, then then it, it just started uh, – Lukashenko's authority was lost forever. Wow. That's, it's, it's such a powerful description you
3: give of the, the, the performative and mobilizing element of an election. This is something you know, scholars have long argued that elections are not just about the, the count of the vote. Of course, that matters enormously, but they're, they're moments of public expression. Uh, they're moments of public symbolism. Uh, and, and what you're describing is, is a, a kind of uh, national brother and sisterhood that that was built around the act of voting and then claiming the claiming the, the votes, that the votes should be counted appropriately. Uh, Thomas, uh, one of the things you've studied is, of course, the influence of Russia in this region in all kinds of ways. And Belarus has long been a kind of smaller little brother supplicant to Russia in all kinds of ways, especially to uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, authoritarian rule in Russia. uh Take us through the Russian role in recent events. What what is Russia doing? Uh, What what role is Vladimir Putin playing?
5: So there's, you know, the larger Russian role and the more minute Russian role. And Matt and I actually spoke with uh um, Dr. David Marples from um University of Alberta. Hope I got that right. Um, but he talked to us about just you know, if you look at the political science cross cutting way, you compare Russia to Belarus and Russia to Ukraine. And Russia to Ukraine has always been more aggressive um more antagonistic much more involved in everyday affairs russian belarus has always like you said sort of this little brother thing um but it hasn't had the same push and pull the constant moving away like michael spoke about comparing the 2014 ukraine protests to the current one of belarus and that's almost that's kind of remained the case in a lot of ways with how putin has responded in the short run, they've given money. They've given, you know, tacit military support. Although Lukashenko has blown that completely out of proportion, Russia's basically like, "We will support the uh, alliances that we've signed. We're not going to mobilize immediately." Um, but you have seen these videos of, you know, Russian troops driving west from Moscow. Where are they going? We don't know. So there is kind of this fear that Russia is going to be involved more in the crackdown. But I think Putin has sort of wisely. He's reading the tea leaves. He doesn't want to make this an anti-Russian movement. By placing Putin in Minsk, he's making it an anti-Lukashenko movement and trying his best to see how he can still be in, you know, have that big brother relationship with whomever is going to be running Belarus.
3: And, and Thomas, there's been a lot written about uh, concerns uh, in the Baltic countries, in Lithuania, Latvia, and particularly in Estonia, uh, about Russian uh, aggression and perhaps Russia exploiting this moment. And there's been a lot of concern among NATO members, both because of uh, a fear that Putin will exploit this moment, but also because of uh, America's pulling back from NATO, re- re- reducing forces and our contribution to NATO recently. Is, are those fears overstated? I don't think you
5: can ever overstate uh, the Baltic country fears. I think they are rightfully fearful just given their geographic location in the world. I do think, though, and Matt definitely has an opinion on this, that Russia, we look at what happened in Ukraine and we go, oh, no, it's going to happen again in Belarus. Um, Ukraine was a disaster for Russia. There's no other way to view that. I don't think Putin is going to pull the same levers knowing how I think weak the country looked following that, knowing how much it isolated them from the international community of which they want no part in, but that still has economic and um, you know reciprocal effects that has serious effects not being involved in how the world is being run. So you can tell me Putin doesn't care about that, but when the economy is flatlining, I think he will care at some point. So uh, the idea of, you know, Russia uh, driving tanks into Tallinn or Riga or wherever, I think it is overblown. I don't think uh, they are wrong to be paranoid, though.
3: Uh, well Matthew what, what what do you think um, because the history of course uh, is of Soviet and Russian intervention uh, in this region the, as, as our listeners know the Baltic countries uh, were uh, under so direct Soviet rule uh, and even Mikhail Gorbachev used uh, military force people forget this in the Baltics at the very end of his rule in 1990 1991 and of course the experience of, Lukash- of, of excuse me of Ukraine was of uh, Putin trying to install a puppet of his own and then keep that puppet in power as Thomas said that didn't work out well. The Orange Revolution overthrew that regime. But uh, are you as sanguine on Russian military action and direct intervention as Thomas's?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think Putin is definitely kind of stuck between Iraq and, and, and a hard place on this one. On, on the one hand, he wants to keep Belarus in Russia's orbit, and he's you know willing to pay uh, a price to do that. On the other hand, as, as Tom just pointed out, uh, if he does take drastic action, uh, right, he becomes uh, the subject of the ire of the Belarusian people. And uh, I, I don't know, I'm not necessarily sur- sure that a Russian occupation of Belarus would go very uh, very well for them. I think that the difference, though, with Ukraine is that, you know, Belarus ultimately is not, you know, he, in fact, it's a huge economic uh, uh uh, weight on Russia, that Russia just has to spend billions and billions of dollars uh, subsidizing Belarus, essentially. So you, they don't want Belarus in their orbit for uh, kind of more uh, realist uh, economic or geopolitical uh, reasons. I mean, the real reason he has to support Lukashenko at this point is the democracy. If the d- If democracy is seen to be successful in Belarus... And the opposition ultimately comes out successful, then that's just yet another playbook for the, the the internal opposition to Putin within Russia. And I think that they're they're thinking, oh, if you know, if our elections are similarly falsified, just like in Belarus, then our only option is to to look at the Belarusian uh, scenario and copy that. And I think that uh, you know, whether it's Navalny's team, whether it's other people, I think that there could be. Generations of Russians who become increasingly disappointed in elections and resort to more methods, methods more similar to what we've seen in Belarus. And that is what really, really scares um, Putin. That makes a lot of sense,
3: and and it's what we would often call the contagion of revolution. That has to that has to scare Putin quite a bit, as as another aging, long time dictator in a country Russia like Belarus that's having trouble dealing with the pandemic, that's that's experiencing an economic slowdown, that's experiencing less foreign currency returns on its on its fossil fuels. Um, Putin has to be very frightened and, and very concerned about uh, any success in Belarus, it seems to me, encouraging uh, opposition in his own country. Uh, Michael, in that context, I mean, where do you see this going? Uh, it's hard to make predictions, um, but but knowing the history as you do and knowing the country as you do, what what do you think we're going to see in the next few months uh, in, in Belarus?
2: <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> i um I, I I honestly, I have no idea. I really don't. um but Matthew mentioned David Marples and uh and, and I think Thomas mentioned the um Putin giving a loan to Lukashenko and I David Marples wrote recently a, a very uh i thought apt um critique of what that meant. He wrote that ten billion would have meant that you're our best friend and we'll save you whatever the cost. 7000000000 billion, you're hi- highly regarded, and we'll bail you out for the immediate future. 3000000000 billion, you're worth supporting for now. But 1500000000 billion, you're basically done, and we will keep you hanging on the rope for a week or two longer. So I thought that was a, a particularly um, keen observation of the situation. I, I don't think Putin's invested in, in keeping Lukashenko around. And I've also seen, I don't know that this is true or not, but I've seen reports saying that um, Tikhonovskaya has been vetted by the FSB while she's been in in Vilnius. So I think Russia is is probably, and I think this is in part due to the fact that this particular um, movement or phase of the movement isn't anti-Russian there there i don't see i haven't seen eu flags except maybe twice in the first two days of the protest um and 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 i haven't heard anti-russian sentiments from the from the protesters and you have to remember that belarus is linguistically you know a, a, a russophone country and and belarusians feel very close to Russia and and so I I think that, um, I think that Russia is prepared to see see power change hands, as long as they can keep their their thumb on the scale, and I think they can. I I think, I think any uh, Tikhanovskaya, Barbarika, any of these people are, are willing to let Russia have a, a, a fairly substantial say. So, so I, I as far as what the you know next six months or so hold i don't I don't know I don't know um how long Lukashenko can financially hang on to power. It's not feasible to keep arresting you know a thousand people a week or something. so yeah
3: well, it's a it's it's a it's a great analysis you offer because it 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 would parallel uh, what Russia and what other large powers, including the United States, often do when uh, they see um, disruption. And unrest in countries that are important for them strategically, uh, instead of trying to hold on to a leader who's lost legitimacy, and it might be ineffective finding a replacement who satisfies some of the nationalist urges of the protesters, but remains closely tied to the strategic interests of the larger neighbor. And to some extent, the Russians have played this game in Central Asia for quite a long time, um, and and it would it, it would probably be a very smart strategy. In so far as that doesn't motivate opposition within Russia, that would seem to me to be the key key element of what you are describing, Natalia. We're going to use you as our soothsayer. Uh, What's your prediction? What's going to happen? Are you hopeful for the next few months?
0: Uh, Yes, I am. I remain optimistic, although we all have mood swings every day. It happens multiple times. Uh, We get very desperate, then we get some support, some good news. So it's good news and bad news uh, every day in waves. Uh, However, I'm sure we have reached the point of no return. And our nation has traditions of very long-lasting resistance. Uh, You can see that uh, happening back in the Second World War days. And there is an opinion, if we don't succeed right now, we're going to starve it out. (laughs) Uh, We're just going to exhaust the regime by like economically, uh, by protest, um, strikes, all those things that can come into play. So I'm sure it's not going to be the same anymore. That's I'm 100 percent positive on that. Uh, what we try to do is to make it better, not to make it worse. (laughs) And of course, uh, the first hope is that the violence will stop and political prisoners will be released. I would say this is the number one priority right now. And then having a fair election, um, having an election where we can finally vote and see the results of our votes transparently, that's a dream, that's the hope of every Belarusian these days. And yeah, I just support all the all the patriotic moves of my nation, and I'm very proud of my people for finally uh, having that voice and showing the world how we can protest peacefully and how much we can achieve together.
3: Well, I, I'm inspired by by your words. I just want to ask one quick follow-up question. Do you believe that these incredibly... Um, uh, courageous protests that have gone on now for more than eight weeks. Uh, You obviously believe they will continue. Do you believe that those who help to keep Lukashenko in power, particularly the law enforcement and military, will they join the protests? Will they sympathize with the protests?
0: I think uh, the system is going to be collapsing from the inside because the more we go out, uh, the more they see how many people are involved, that triggers some thoughts in their heads. Maybe we are on the wrong side. And we see a lot of officers resigning. It's not in the media uh, because they, sometimes they don't have uh, the courage to say that publicly. But I think we have, we're gonna have more people leaving the system and that's how it's gonna collapse from the inside. Of course, my hope is that some higher rank officers will resign and probably take a lot of people with them. Um, but we haven't seen great examples of that yet. The more we uh, continue, the more uncertainty is going to remain within the system. Right,
3: right. Well, and, and that is something for us to watch. Uh, are, are the, the uh, institutions that keep Lukashenko at least protected, <laughs> do they, do they uh, peel off and begin and begin to look for uh, other ways of expressing themselves and, and, and stop supporting him. I mean, that's really what was crucial in the transformation of the Soviet Union, for example, uh, especially if these institutions are asked to harm the protesters. How do they react in that moment? Uh, that's, that's absolutely crucial. You've given us such such hope. Uh, in the way you describe things, Natalia. Um, and, and all of our panelists have really given us such, such really powerful insights. Uh, Zachary, as a young person in the United States who cares about democracy, uh, is this something that, that your generation cares about? Is this, is this uh, set of events in, in Belarus something that can inspire us in the United States where we have our own concerns about democracy?
4: Yes, I think that this movement uh, in, in Belarus is very powerful, not just in Belarus, but, but globally. It's particularly um, pertinent today when we have such bad news around the world to finally see something good or at least something that appears to be going in a positive direction. So I think that this is a really inspiring moment for young people. I just hope we don't, we don't uh, let it leave our minds in a, in a day that we, we, we continue to push for democracy around the world and particularly in Belarus.
3: That was very well said, Zachary. And one of the themes of our podcast week in and week out is that we not only need to understand the history of democracy, we need to pay attention to democracy uh, around the world. If you care about democracy in one country, you must care about it in all countries. And and, uh, a country like Belarus can be a bellwether. For the future of democracy uh, across the globe. I want to thank our really extraordinary panel that we had this morning of of experts who shared their experiences and their study and their knowledge. Uh, We had Natalia Yagur, Michael Dorman, Matthew Orr, and Thomas Rehnquist. I hope all our listeners will keep their eyes out for more work uh, by these uh, four extraordinary uh, scholars and activists. Uh, hope all of our listeners will pay attention to what's going on in B- Belarus and other countries, uh, like the United States, struggling with democracy. Uh, and I hope our listeners will also listen to Slavic Connection, which is the podcast that Matthew and Thomas and others uh, put on each each week, which uh, really covers these issues in, in even more depth than we can on, on this podcast. Uh, these are, again, not just issues that, that Russianists And scholars of Eastern Europe should be caring about there. These are issues that everyone around the world should care about. Uh, Thank you for your poem today, Zachary. And uh, most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us and caring about the future of democracy on this episode of This is Democracy.
1: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at HarrisonLemke.com.
4: Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.